Hello, everyone, and welcome back to this second session in our Ministers Reflect conference. Uh, one of the most common themes you'll be unsurprised to know in our Ministers Reflect interviews is the relationship between ministers and civil servants. Uh, ministers that we interview often emphasise the importance of that relationship and getting things done, uh, and also talk about how committed, hardworking, and capable the officials they worked with were. But they also talk about the things they wish the civil service did differently, uh, from how their private office teams organise their time and paperwork, uh, to sometimes a lack of appreciation for Parliament. And they also discuss the different approaches different ministers have to getting the best out of the civil service machine. So we thought what better way to approach that topic to than get a bunch of people who have experienced uh, that relationship. Uh, so we are very pleased to have Chloe Smith here with us, MP for Norwich North and a former minister at the Department of Science, Innovation and Technology until earlier this year, uh, also Department for Work and Pensions and the Cabinet Office. Uh, to my right, Dame Una O'Brien, a former permanent secretary at the Department of Health and Social Care, then the Department of Health, I think it was. Uh, and also my colleague, Alex Thomas, program director here at the Institute on our civil service program, and a former official who actually, I believe, worked with both of our guests here today. So no awkwardness there for you, Alex. Got to, be, got to behave. Yeah. Um, just a reminder, for those of you watching online, please do submit questions on Slido. I've got the pad here, and I will be bringing those questions in. For those of you in the room, as ever, there will be a roving microphone. Uh, do please raise your hand, indicate to me, uh, and that will make its way to you. And we will again be live tweeting from IFG events using the hashtag IFG Ministers. Chloe, I'm going to turn to you first. Uh, quite a broad question. What do ministers want from the civil service and, and what does good support look like? Yes. Um, you, you actually want, I think, you know, the ideal, of course, that we all talk about. So that means uh, good advice. Yeah. As we all know, um, advice actually means several things when you use that word. It means sometimes, you know, particular bits of wisdom or particular insights or don't do this or do this. But it also means this kind of unit of currency that is, uh, you know, a written piece of information, a piece of briefing, piece of uh, uh, decision making that mm. you as the minister then have to do. And you want both types of that use of the word advice to be excellent. You want to be able to rely on that provision of information and, and assistance in your decision making mm. for it to be robust uh, decisions. Um, you also want, you know, beyond that, you want to be able to uh, get on well with mm -hmm. the team. So actually on both sides of that relationship, there needs to be, you know, uh, I hope an amicable approach, a, a sort of a, a flexible approach, a, an appreciation of each other's role. And you need to be able to uh, very quickly, very rapidly, sometimes with very fresh subject matter, mm. uh, come together and together perform a job. And that performance might be in front of Parliament for questions or for a select committee or for something else. Uh, it, it will inevitably at some point be in the full-on public gaze under cameras or whatever. Uh, or it will be in some other detailed format where you're basically performing together and actually both of you need to make sure that succeeds. Yeah. And uh, we, we often, you know, we think about how to support future ministers, thinking about what training and induction goes into it. And one of the things we focus on is how to understand the civil service as a whole machine, because you don't see a huge number of the civil servants who are working for you. Were there any assumptions that you had before becoming a minister? Uh, dare I say it, you were quite young when you first became Indeed a minister? Were there any assumptions that you had about being a minister working with the civil service that then were proved wrong or, or proved right? I'm one who actually has had a really positive experience with the civil service over time. And, and, and in my case, I think that uh, dated actually from um, prior to having gone into, yep. into parliament, into government, where I'd, in various other professional capacities, capacities I'd worked with, with civil servants and had a great respect for what they do and, and how they do it. And, and for me, that's only grown. I'm, I'm mm. absolutely a fan of the British civil service and the way that we, we do that. And I think it's something that actually I've seen many other countries also want to learn from. Uh, and, and I take that as, I take that as, a, as, as a good point of evidence. Um, so no, my expectations weren't, weren't different to my, my reality and my experience over you know, 15 years actually of, of parliament and government uh, mm. have been positive ones. Yeah, and Una, um, if I can turn to you now, 
obviously it's a two-way relationship so you also have to think as a permanent secretary and as a, an official working in any part working to a minister what it is that the ministers want how do you go about that how do you convey that to the department and how do you do it for different ministers with different personalities hmm. it's a beguilingly simple question which has yep. a complex answer and perhaps the first way to get into this is to um, imagine a government that is in office and one or two members of a five-member ministerial team are being reshuffled. Mm. So that's, that happens a lot and has happened a lot more frequently recently, but it goes on all the time. So if I'm thinking about um, a new um, individual coming in to be the Minister for Health, for example, who might previously have worked in one or two other departments... Mm. Um, there is a process of induction into the work of that department. Mm. You're obviously aware that you're bringing someone, someone's coming into the department who's already part of a government, who is familiar with uh, his or her colleagues on the ministerial team, and that's all, in the, that's all part of the context for the induction in that uh, position. We can think of an entirely different circumstance um, and something that I lived through myself in 2010 where a group of people are coming in, all five at the same time, to be ministers. Mm. And maybe, I can't remember now, maybe none of them or one of them has, only pr has previously been in ministerial office at all. Um, and a number of them come in with a lot of knowledge of health and what they want to do. And that's a completely different approach that you need to... Um, you're thinking about the team, the relationships between that team, as well as the process of introducing them to what the department is, how it goes about its work, mm. and who the key officials are. So I think there are some things that are in common, but the context of that introduction and in induction is very different mm, and we were just discussing uh beforehand i'm going to get it out early on uh about the relationship between civil servants and ministers more generally it's been in the news a lot more recently alex has has written about it quite a mm. lot and it's felt very fractious recently or at least it has been portrayed in the media and so mm. forth uh do you think that's a very abnormal time that we're going through yeah. in terms of that or you know, how is it in, in your day? How has it been uh, over the course of your career? Yeah. Uh, where to... I'm not going to spend our precious time this morning going on about what we're, is being revealed to us this week, which pretty much we already knew about, let's face it. The truth is that, um, on the whole, the working relationship between the civil service and the <coughs> ministers is, I think, exactly as Chloe has described. It is professional, um, it is functional, and the relationships are good. There are, at the same time, and I'm very conscious of important work going on at the moment, looking at the role of the centre, for example, the Institute's work, Francis Maud's work, there are some big questions about systemic governance mm. within our system. We have, a, if you like, an analogue setup. I would call the way departments are structured that really is rooted in the 1920s. We're in a completely different world where information flows differently, power is distributed. Our institutions have not yet caught up with that. Mm. That is not an issue really about the working relationship between civil servants and ministers. It's a wider governance problem. Um, that really is something we're going to have to face as a country. Yeah, that is something we should come back to that. Uh, it's a very good point. Alex, um, obviously ministers are very powerful uh, to civil servants. Um, we've heard some positive views about the relationship, but is there a danger of civil servants trying, sometimes trying to please ministers, or is there something more complex that they're trying to do in their relationships? I think it... Inevitably, it depends on the civil servant, it depends on the minister, and it depends on that operating environment that, uh, that Una was talking about uh, there. I think you know, civil servants do want to please their ministers, um, uh, and uh, it is an important 
part. Uh, it's what David Miliband actually used to call sort of license to operate. It was a phrase he used a lot. I think a civil servant working well for a minister and achieving the objectives that the minister is setting them is the sort of critical bar to that civil servant being a good, the, the, the critical sort of factor in that civil servant being a good civil servant. So the minister is a really important audience for the civil servant um, uh, and a really important stakeholder, to use that terrible word. But they are obviously not the only person in the department, in the environment that, uh, that the civil servant is going to have in mind. There are at least two other audiences. One is the internal departmental um, uh, uh, view of any civil servant. Uh, uh, and civil servant will always have in mind that the person with uh, uh, authority over the development of their career is the permanent secretary, the director general, the director, the kind of chain of command within the civil service. So they will always have an eye to that. The system works because all of those people want the civil servant to be working well for the minister. Mm. Um, so where everything is aligned, that's fine. Mm. But in the end, if you're going to really hack off your minister or really hack off your permanent secretary, you're probably going to choose the minister um, uh, to, you know, to discuss. The other, the other audience is, um, and this is sort of slightly more contested, I suppose, but uh, the public or um, history, uh, the record, uh, as we're seeing in the uh, COVID inquiry. And I do think good civil servants also have in mind that they are um, <clears throat> there to do a job for the, for the public. In our system, that is entirely mediated through the minister relationships. Mm. So the person who represents the public to the civil servant is the minister. Um, but I think the civil servant should also feel a duty to give their best advice, to be honest, to have the public and the public record in mind when they are giving that advice. And it's, as we are now seeing, strongly in their own interests to do that. It doesn't always come out in such a public way as the COVID inquiry. Um, and the final debate, well, it's, I'll raise it as a question really, is the extent to which it is helpful or not for civil servants to be fellow travellers in a mm. project. That, you know, that can, uh, you can get into a debate about politicisation of civil service there, but I don't quite mean that. I mean a civil servant having the enthusiasm that, say, the civil servants working on the Sure Start programme did in the noughties for Labour, that you know, I'm really interested in electoral law and constitutional reform. And so there was a sense in which, which we were engaged on a shared yeah. project when, when yeah. Chloe was my minister. Yeah. And I think that can be brilliant for civil servants and ministers, but it can also be a bit dangerous if you feel like you're too much engaged on a kind of hero project together. Yeah. Um, Chloe, another sort of thing that comes out of our interviews quite a lot is... <laughs> different hierarchy of, of ministers and ministerial teams and actually it's something we at the Institute are trying to explore more the idea of teamwork in ministerial relationships. You've been a more junior minister, you've also been a secretary um, of state. What's your experience of the way in which people go about trying to work a ministerial team? Is it a good thing? Are we right? Um, or should there be rivalry and competition and potential chaos there? It's a slightly leading question. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, th I, think we should, I think you should actually go back to the, to the reason, actually, of why an entire team is needed. Why mm. could you not just have one person, just the Secretary of State? And the answer to that is that there is actually too much volume of work for just one person to do, so therefore you need uh, a team of people. And, you know, why does that volume of work exist? It exists because you're serving the public. So just to really pick up and, and absolutely agree with Alex's point, you know, the, the, the customer here, let's be absolutely mm. clear about this, is the public. You know, we are all in our different parts of this, this apparatus uh, doing things to achieve, you know, a set of goals for which we are accountable to the public. Yeah. Not only in historical time, mm. but in present time, in current time uh, as well. Um, so, you have a team of ministers because there's a certain volume there. So, for example, you will typically have a split uh, like, um, you know, you would expect your, uh, uh, the more junior members of the ministerial team to be the ones doing the bulk of the parliamentary questions and the yep. parliamentary uh, debates and, and, and Westminster Hall occasions. Um, and I can say this because, as you say, I've absolutely done all of this. I mean, I yeah. really have done every single stage of this and I can do, say this now with a smile on my face because I've shoveled it at every level. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the Secretary of State, though, I think, then has a particular uh, role, of course, in this. Some very classic roles that are well known, mm. namely, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, providing the leadership at the, uh, from the cabinet table outwards. Yeah. Um, but in organisational terms, they also have a really significant point about setting clarity. Mm. And I think this helps to a couple of points that both Una and Alex have made. If you 
if you don't have a clear set of objectives, mm. which you need to be able to translate into the work that you expect uh, your ministerial team and your civil service team to do, yeah. then you're not going to get very far. And to the point about whether you have to have a clash between a minister and a, and a permanent secretary, well, the answer to that also is that in the end, your secretary of state and your permanent secretary are going to have to have a discussion to resolve that and produce you know, clarity on whatever the thing might be. Yeah. And if they can take that task on seriously, then actually every part of the broader apparatus can perform its proper role. Yeah, Una, obviously, I have mm -hmm. to ask, what, what is that like from your perspective? I mean, presumably you, by and large, work to the Secretary of State. If the Secretary of State is clashing with the junior ministers, your loyalty is more to the Secretary of State. But is there anything that you can do if there is a difficult relationship to try and solve it? <laughs> or did you always, was it always yeah. working harmoniously <laughs> in your time? Yeah. I think this is a, a very... I mean, we're here today with academic colleagues and we're, we're talking about, you know, a, a reflective space we're in today. Yeah. And I, I think this bears further study how the team of ministers could be, how, how it is, and how it, when it works well and when it doesn't. I, I might just pick one uh, aspect of it that I've found introduces perhaps uh, unintended tensions. Mm. And that is um, the, the list of responsibilities of a parliamentary secretary or a Minister of State mm. um, is determined in number 10. And it's not my job as a permanent secretary working with the Secretary of State to sit down and say, this is how we'll chop up the roles and responsibilities. And I remember being quite shocked by that when I became permanent secretary. I was going, what? You mean someone who doesn't even know my department mm. is sitting there with a, you know, a set of pieces on a table and saying, we'll give X this task and Y that task. So, I mean, if that still is the case, and I think it is, look at Alex, he won't know this better than I do. I think that bears examination mm. as to whether that is actually helping the team. The second point is that um, I've now been involved in a number of occasions, um, some of them a long time ago, where the Secretary of State, not too happy about some of the people who appointed as junior ministers. Mm. And that's just thrown over the fence to the Secretary of State to sort of sort out. I mean, there might be broader party political reasons why there's a breadth of perspective being introduced to that team. But the Secretary of State is sort of left to deal with that. Um, and that can introduce a lot of tensions, not only amongst the team, but, but going right down into the, the policy groups with, within the department. Mm. So, yeah, I'm, I think this is what, as we talk about it today, definitely worth trying to draw out what good practice would be. Mm, brilliant. We will put it on the list. I'm looking at you, Tim, uh, for future research. And anyone else here as well? Um, Alex, we haven't touched upon the, the sort of unit at the centre of it. Uh, again, was highlighted this week by the COVID inquiry, the private office. Um, that's presumably crucial to the relationship that, that we've been talking about. What's your perspective? What do ministers want from private office? What is good? What is uh, less good? And does the civil service think enough about how to make sure that private office is as good as it can be? Mm. Yeah, really good question. Just I'm picking up on what Una said really quickly. First, one anecdote. I was talking to a former minister, not Chloe, who had been a minister of state for a long time and then became secretary <coughs> of state. Uh, and it's almost the flip side of what Una was saying. He said, um, he said, when I became Secretary of State, I suddenly realised that all the things I thought the civil service was blocking was actually the Secretary <laughs> of State who was blocking. So I think, um, uh, uh, and you know, exaggerating slightly for effect, but um, <laughs> there is something about, completely to Una's point, about surfacing within mm. this. I mean, it sounds a bit trite to say honest conversations, but you know, surfacing properly all the way up to Secretary of State and Permanent Secretary level and Prime Minister and Cabinet Secretary uh, level and you know honestly some of the tensions in the system so that everyone understands what's actually going on and that is a slight council of perfection but there is something there that the half uh, you know half honest conversations and the slight kind of eliding of what's going on then have consequences for the relationship between ministers between ministers and civil servants you know and across the whole system mm -hmm. so I, I, I wonder if that might be a bit of a theme a private office um, Again, the sort of the entry level point is really good organisation, mm. uh, and that can be quite 
boring, but it's really important to making sure the minister's making the best use of their time, to making sure they're not um, uh, having to deal with a load of terrible correspondence. I think that came up um, earlier. Um, uh, and uh, the, the systems and processes to quite a micro level in the private office are working to serve the minister so that they're absolutely maximising their um, sort of capacity and, and, and bandwidth. Um, I think the second thing is just a relationship of trust. And um, in the end, you spend, the private office are not the most senior people in the department at all. Often they're quite junior. Mm. Um, but you spend an awful lot of time together. And so kind of just basically kind of getting on, but then being able to not... I think a private secretary makes a terrible mistake if they come in and say, oh, the department's terrible. This advice you've been given is wrong. This is, you know, what, what on earth are they saying? Some do, most don't. But a space where a minister can then kind of reflect on the advice that they're getting yeah. with someone who is informed enough to be able to have a conversation and actually just say, um, uh, just say, you know, be a kind of foil almost for, mm. for, a, for a minister. And then the third thing is to um, explain what, what's really going on. So again, certainly as a private secretary, I found my job was quite often to say, you do realise that the reason that submission is written like that is because so-and-so hates so-and-so and they've fallen out over this. And, and, and to be a kind of translator of the department to the minister, I think. And obviously that role changes as ministers are more experienced and over time. Yeah, we, we, uh, we, we work with private offices quite a lot, uh, using Ministers Reflect in particular to talk about the, the role of minister. And we always talk about the two-way relationship that mm. Uh, the private offices, the, the minister's eyes and ears into the department, but they are also the way for the department to get to understand the minister, what they want, why they want it. Uh, and, and it is very difficult sometimes to feel like you're, if there is tension, to feel like you're caught between the, the two. I'm going to open it up to... I was, oh, yeah, I please, was just Amy. going to add a point, if I may, there, Kath, because yeah. uh, it, it's very important to talk about the relationship between a minister and his or her private office. I just want to reference the, uh, the sort of lived reality in a department in a given day, because let's say we've got five ministers, you've mm. got five private offices, but often quite now that they'll be in open plan together, which mm. I think has been a real improvement. Um, but there's lateral uh, conversations going on between private offices um, to try and bring an element of coordination where... Um, topics are crossing, particularly in between the Secretary of State and a junior minister. There's a very close relationship between the principal private secretary, i.e. the person who works for the Secretary of State, and the permanent secretary. Mm. That would be really close, um, because as a permanent secretary, you really, that parallel leadership that we've spoken about, mm. so permanent secretary's private office and the principal private secretary work yeah. in a functional place very well together. But then just the third thing to pick up on this point without labouring it now, but on correspondence, it's pretty much the norm that within the operational group in a department that oversees the private office also sits the parliamentary section, mm. which handles all the liaison with parliament and the correspondence section you often see that in a family of, of um, officials who are under a sort of common managerial umbrella. And the idea of that is to facilitate ease of communication mm. around those two key aspects of the minister's role yeah. with their offices. That's a very good point. And not to forget, shout out to them, the PermSec also has a private office who form part of that, yeah. that important network. Uh, another theme that, that often comes out uh, is Lords Ministers where uh, oftentimes we find that private office there is so crucial, dare I say it, sometimes under-resourced. Mm. Um, and it is very difficult because you often only have one Lord's Minister in a ministerial team and they're carrying yes. the can for the whole department exactly. in that chamber, which is a huge job mm. to do. And mm. so it's incredibly important that that private office is almost getting everything that all the other private offices are getting at the same time. And we haven't even talked about special advisors yet. Oh, so, yeah, don't, we're also, gosh. Can yeah. I just add a point, yeah. about, a couple of points about private office? I mean, I, I really, uh, I agree very much about the importance of them. And there's a key decision, therefore, for, for ministers, which is the extent to which you empower your yeah. private office team. And, and this, you know, can very much rest with, with you to do. 
Um, my preference in, in all cases has been to, to ask for, for added value from mm. the private office. So actually, it's not just a sort of a post-boxing task. Yeah. You know, here's this piece of advice and here comes... You mean like kind of, putting you know, notes in... Belt. Yeah, yeah that, that's they're, the... Yeah. I mean, that's your sort of basic, but, but it can't just be a conveyor belt. It yeah. has to be, what's your opinion on that? You know, yeah. why, what's the value you can add in, in how we discuss this and, and take this decision? Um, and only then, I think, do you get to sort of unlocking really all of the all of the the the, the good things that, that need to be in that in that team. I can add various anecdotes about about private office, but I, I have actually a very fond memory of the first ever private office I encountered, uh, and uh, uh, the way that that one particular private sector in that team um, uh, explained how to do parliamentary questions. Oh, I, I, she she lives on in my memory for yeah. uh, for you know that that function actually of of to an extent helping a first-time minister to understand what to do and how to do it. Yeah. They do that as mm. well, and they can mm. be very good at it. They can also do absolute basics. So in the last private office I had, uh, where, um, you know, I, I actually I could feel many of these points sort of coming together, actually, as mm. everybody's skills and experience, I think, had, had very much grown. But there was also some absolute basics. So they'd, of course, rung up the previous private office that I'd had and discovered all of the sort of slightly sinister things like, you know, how do you like a sandwich? Oh. Uh, and said to me on the very first lunchtime I was in the office and said to me, now, Secretary of State, would you like your usual sandwich? And, oh. I shall, and they, you know, I mean, I'd given them a, a, you know, a tenner to go and buy some lunch. You know, shall I go and get your usual sandwich? And I was like, oh, God, this is, you know, this is either an absolutely huge sinister conspiracy uh, yeah. or this is just one of those embarrassing personal <laughs> moments where, yeah, someone else is now always going to buy your sandwich. That is brilliant. <laughs> uh, a bit of a shame if you were stuck in that, like, somebody always bought you a sandwich and you didn't want to tell them that wasn't a sandwich yeah. you liked. That point later that week, actually, yep. yes, I did say, well, thank you so much, but I'm going to change my sandwich. Yeah. Brilliant. Can yeah. I just ask Chloe, if I may, a quick question. What about the liaison between your private office and your uh, constituency team? Mm. Yes, yeah. very good. Uh, and if I may, this is actually mm. another part of, another facet <laughs> of the relationship with Parliament. Not, mm. not, obviously, in the sense of the minister's own constituency. That's a, yeah. a, a red line we don't cross. Um, but it is an important aspect of understanding and you do expect the private office actually to help, some, in some cases, the rest of the department to better understand mm. Parliament. And a contribution to that can, in, can indeed come from the fact that you have a, uh, another team of, of, as an MP, you have another team mm. of people that mm. support you. So therefore, as a minister, because you are both a minister and an MP, you have these two teams, mm. you want them to get on well. So in many cases, I offer them a sort of social way to do that, and that, that, was, that was nice. Um, there's definitely learning that goes both ways. I've absorbed quite a few things from the civil service, actually, that I've then asked my parliamentary team to do over time and, mm. and techniques. Uh, and, but, but it goes both ways, uh, and, and it's an important uh, uh, small part of, a, uh, of the cogs. Yeah, mm. definitely. Thank you. Uh, right, I'd like to open it up to the audience. I hear there were some great questions last time round. Uh, Maddie, yes, can we have the lady here and then move over here to the left and then I'll come to you. Hi, thank you. Um, so that's been a really interesting discussion so far. My name's Miriam and I'm from the Cabinet Office. Um, it's kind of a dual question for Una and Chloe, which is what training and induction would you have most valued, Chloe, when you first started from a more structured and formal perspective? And for Una, what training and induction do you think ministers might have uh, valued or needed that you'd seen in your time that they perhaps didn't get? Brilliant. We'll go over here next and then to the gentleman behind. Thank you. That was a very insightful discussion. Uh, I'm Rasika from DLUC. And I've got two parts of the question, rather to say two questions. First one, uh, I'm a drafter for a living. And uh, my relationship with SPADS has always been people who drastically change whatever I wanted to say. <laughs> Most of the times I've done hundreds of PQs, and I can vouch that. <laughs> And just interested from Chloe's perspective and, of course, all the panelists, what your relationship with SPADs is. Now, not the job description, but what a minister looks up to in a SPAD. Mm -hmm. That's one thing. And the second thing is uh, we've spoken about induction training and knowledge. Uh, but, of course, I, I, for one, have uh, had a lot of benefit from experience in learning. Basically, uh, when, you call, when you say appreciation of parliament, I've done courses, structured learning, but I've had the opportunity to work 
uh, provide official support in Parliament, and that's probably the best learning I've done of Parliament, and I've come a long way from there. So, the, but then there are caveats for people to do it. You need a certain level of clearance and all that. Mm -hmm. So, how do we bring these opportunities closer to civil servants? More number of them. Yeah, Thank you. Question. Brilliant. And then, gentlemen, there. Thank you. Thank you. Robert Morland, I'm a former Conservative member of the European Parliament. I hasten to add, not a former Conservative, I still am. Um, <laughs> my question really is because I had, as my lodger for 13 years in Kennington, um, a, a former member of the government and uh, a member of the cabinet. Um, you may begin by the length of time to guess who it might be. But he always, on this subject, made two points to me. The, the first was essentially that the relationship he had with civil servants was always good. They understand each other's side. His only problems was when the civil servants on his specific subject were very often divided in their technical views to him, and this was always a difficulty. And he then was forced into a political decision. And secondly, um, the words I haven't mentioned, which are, was the yes minister part of it, or yes prime minister, that did work, he said, that did happen, and indeed on the programme a lot of the things you saw on it were true for that administration. Very good. Um, okay, shall we start, uh, Chloe, training and induction. Mm. Um, did you have any? <laughs> um, well, apart from that wonderful private secretary who I've just mentioned, um, uh, no, no, there isn't, in, in my experience, there has not been any such formal thing. And I, I mean, I, I suspect we would all agree that that's something that, mm. that can and should be remedied. Um, I, I mean, I think actually the, the, you know, the role that the IFG can play does a, you know, probably 99% of that remedy. And I think that that should very much continue. So hopefully today's uh, uh, efforts are part of that. Um, but the things I would be looking out for, or I would advise a uh, an incoming minister at this point to, to think about. Um, some are absolute basics, of course, you know, know your subject matter, know the, uh, the, the landscape of people who care about that subject and who are affected by that subject. Uh, think about it not just as a subject, but as, you know, real people's lives. Mm. Um, work out how you're going to, uh, work out what it is you're going to try to change and how, mm. and then you can enlist the support of civil servants, of course, to do that once you are clear on the, the objectives and the the, 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 um, the, the size of the project. Um, I think a, a couple of sort of slightly less obvious things to, to add. Um, I mean, I hope that, you know, the next generation of incoming MPs, and I'm stand, I won't be one of them standing down from Parliament next year, but, you know, there will always be a need for, I think, the incoming generation of MPs and ministers to have sufficient working knowledge, actually, of how the, the whole of the Constitution works. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and indeed, economic knowledge as well. Yeah. I mean, you, you wouldn't necessarily take that as well, because there will, of course, have been a range of backgrounds of people coming in, and that's good. That's a good thing. Uh, but as a minister, you do need parts of both of those things, constitutional and economic, and you need to be able to be uh, in control of, of those levers in order to be able to be effective. Um, the other thing I think I would... Uh, add is to always make sure as a minister that you, you, you retain enough control over your own diary and mm. your own approach so that you have thinking time. And this is critical because mm. to the point that the gentleman makes about when you have disagreement perhaps between civil servants or between yourself and civil servants, how are you going to know which way to go? How mm. are you going to know which piece of advice to value or which thing is the, is the better answer? unless you've also got just a bit of space left to go and validate it, to go yep. and check it, to go and consult with somebody who might well be the absolutely uh, uh, eminent expert in the field, but that your civil servants haven't necessarily thought to put you in contact with, or, yeah. or whatever the scenario um, may be. Going on to what, does, what is needed from a SPAD, um, a SPAD can, um, can and should be bringing, um, bringing kind of the remaining elements of all this in and, in and bringing it together. They um, should uh, be able to help the minister, you know, as a, as a conduit to some of these things I'm talking about, uh, and to do so with the, with the, you know, with the political element added. Obviously, that's the, the core difference between them and, uh, and, and their civil service colleagues. 
As a minister, you do then want both of those parts to work closely together. They are colleagues. We are all colleagues, actually, in that, once we're yep. inside that, that team room. Um, and so we, you know, with awareness of our different roles in the system, you know, we, we, we build that together. Yeah. And I should add, I mean, the Cabinet Office has developed uh, new training programmes or induction programmes for ministers. One of the big problems is ministerial take-up and whether or not uh, early on they're willing to go along and take up the, you know, because it does take up time and it goes to that question about experiential learning as well. Um, you know, it takes up enough time to go to a session where somebody's just briefing you on something. If you want to do something that is really good learning, which might be facilitated, might be sort of wargaming different scenarios and so forth. You know, same with thinking time. It's a lot of time out of a minister's diary and time is probably one of the most precious things uh, that ministers have and, and the civil service obviously everyone wants a bit of it. So it is quite, quite difficult. Mm. Una, on that point about experiential learning, mm -hmm. presumably you've seen the evolution of yeah. uh, sort of learning and development support that is given to civil servants and to ministers where it does exist. Mm -hmm. Is there more that we could do there that could Definitely. help people so they're not just sort of learning on the job, the kind of yes minister approach to, or mm -hmm. watching yes minister as a way of learning <laughs> how to do the job? I thoroughly <laughs> do not want to see people do that. This is yeah. not a, a manual for how to do the job. Yeah. Well, it's um, from the perspective where I sit now, and I've spent the last seven years coaching senior leaders in government and regulators, um, I, I just really want to emphasise the importance of the evidence that's out there from all parts of the economy and internationally, that at the top of organisations, leaders do learn from the job they're doing. Mm. But how do they do that? you have to uh, build in time for self-reflection. Mm. Now, on the question of induction, I think we've all been in a situation in our lives where we've started a new job and you get induction day one, two and three before you get, you know, you're going to get on the payroll and you get a whole load of stuff thrown at you that you cannot really make a lot of sense of. Um, I think that model of induction is not fit for purpose when it comes to thinking about ministerial mm. induction. And I, I don't know what is planned, but I hope it's at a higher level of sophistication. <clears throat> I would expect to see something that had an offer that went through perhaps the first nine to 12 months that had certain um, opportunities for groups of ministers to come together across departments and reflect on what they're learning. Mm. Um, I think it's really, really important that um, the, there is support there for d deepening self-awareness and learning how to have strong working relationships. This is at the core of being a successful minister, notwithstanding, uh, or perhaps I should say, absolutely agreeing with everything that Chloe said, because you do need that understanding about people, facts, the economy. I totally mm. agree with that. But the other thing I do want to give um, emphasis to now is I feel we're at, ready for a new chapter on behaviour and standards. Mm. Um, something has to change and we need leadership um, in government from new ministers to uh, really reappraise and set and adhere to those standards. So I, I would love to see that as part of um, an induction process yeah. uh, that is properly um, debated and as in inclusive with senior civil servants absolutely as well. Yeah Alex can I just turn to you on that point because it is a very good one you and I we've had lots of discussions in uh, recent years about uh, ministers understanding the dividing line between having you know a strong view on something guiding the team and bullying. Uh, is there more that can be done to sort of help those kinds of ministers understand what the where the line is or is it always sort of different for different people i think there's inevitably more that can be done i think on that particular point it's that it doesn't work and i think it often comes from a place of a lack of confidence uh, and a feeling that you're being pressured by the system to do things that you might not otherwise uh, want to do so i think i mean that there are some ministers, just there are some people who are just bullies. Um, very few, but it, you know, it exists. And I think in that case, it's only uh, a proper disciplinary system, a better process. We wrote about some of this um, earlier this year and last year, a better process for um, dealing with complaints 
against ministers because there isn't you know, really a strong enough process. There are kind of informal conventions around propriety and ethics and, and so on. But ultimately, I think it does come back to the training point, which is that it doesn't work. You're not, you're not going to um, get the most out of the system if you set yourself up as deeply antagonistic to the system. That doesn't mm -hmm. mean that you can't express yourself in strong terms or be very, very clear or be very frustrated when things aren't happening, when you've asked for them to happen. Um, uh, that's all kind of within the legitimate sphere of, um, of, of activity. Um, uh, but I, you know, I, I think we, we need to be yeah, clearer where that kind of bright line is. I mean, just very briefly on a couple of the other points. Oh, yes, Minister. Um, uh, I think Kath and I probably uh, you know, ag agree on this. I, did a, I wrote a talk a few years ago, which I'll occasionally wheel out, called The Long and Lamentable Shadow of Sir Humphrey, um, uh, which uh, I think there's a lot that is accurate about Yes, Minister, um, but it gets one fundamental thing wrong, which is the power balance. In, um, uh, it might not have always felt like this to you, uh, Chloe, but in, in Yes, Minister, it's Sir Humphrey who has the power and is constantly thwarting the minister. Certainly in my experience, it was the minister who ultimately um, had the power. And I think uh, that has distorted some of our debates mm. about, it's mm. such a touchstone cultural reference point for these sorts of things. That's distorted some of our, our mm. debates about it. But the, the truth in it, I was having a drink last night with a, spe a former special advisor and um, asked him what he thought about this subject. And he suggested that we should talk about not what um, you know, is constructive, but what irritates ministers and civil servants. Um, uh, but just one thing on that, the truth of it is I think ministers really don't like it when they feel managed. Mm. Um, mm. And I think there is a tendency in the civil service to try and manage ministers and not always to bring them in on the debates that, they're, um, uh, that, that they have a completely legitimate uh, interest in. Mm. Uh, and so I can imagine as a minister that feels very frustrating if you're constantly hitting this wall of sort of being treated a bit like a child. Um, uh, Kath's phrase, the child gods put ministers on a pedestal, um, uh, but then kind of infantilise them. Um, uh, I, ca I can imagine that's very frustrating. On the, on the PQs and the kind of secondment stuff, I was told at the start of my career that the, the right way to answer a PQ was to imagine the question, um, imagine that you were in a hot air balloon that had landed <laughs> in a field somewhere uh, you know, in the middle of nowhere and somebody asked you, where are you? And the correct answer is, in a basket. So uh, it, it, you should take as narrow a view of answering the PQ as possible, which I think is not the right way of, uh, of doing it. So comments, yes. And I think, I think there's a nervousness in the civil service about um, letting civil servants out a bit sometimes and just having those broader, um, broader experiences. But there shouldn't be a, a, a bar to it. And I think it's of, uh, we've written a lot mm -hmm. about getting external experience uh, in and out of the civil service. Yeah. There should be much more of that. Just on that, I was at, um, invited to a workshop of uh, parliamentary clerks just last week. Um, a, a really amazing, talented group of young people who support the select committees. Mm -hmm. And in that room, they were all asking, well, how can we learn more about government departments? Mm -hmm. So I really feel there's something here for the IFG to be a, a sort of broker and, and an enabler um, to make that happen because they were feeling we need to understand the departments more deeply so we can be a better service to the select committee. So the appetite's there. It is something we are thinking about. Uh, it's just, there's so many things that we're doing and it's just finding the time for it. Um, I've got some great questions online that I'm going to come to. Alex, I've got one that uh, I'm giving to you, uh, uh, come to you, back to you in a minute. Is political impartiality in the civil service increasingly under threat in our polarised digital world and noting Francis Maud's perception of obstruction and inertia? If so, should anything be done? I'll come back to you in a second. Uh, an excellent question from somebody who is remaining anonymous. What does a good day one briefing look like for a minister? For those who don't know, when you become a new minister, you get given a massive binder um, of your briefing on the department, on the policy issues and so forth. Um, so, Chloe, I might come to you as to whether or not you ever read them. Um, and Una, I might ask you about what goes into preparing it. Um, and then um, I've got an excellent question from Ellie from DLUC. Are private office staff too junior to serve ministers well? Should it be valued as an important role in itself rather than just a route uh, a stepping stone route to a more senior position. Alex, I will also come back. In fact, Alex, I might start with you on Francis Maud and then uh, private office. Has it become just a stepping stone job? 
Impartiality, I mean, read the uh, paper that I wrote for the uh, IFG on it, uh, is my uh, first self-serving answer. Um, uh, it's a constant discussion, and I think impartiality always has to be re-earned by the civil service. The civil service doesn't have a divine right to exist. It doesn't have a divine right to be impartial. There are different systems of government uh, that, uh, uh, that exist. The civil service gets its legitimacy from its effectiveness. Uh, and that is why the sorts of things that we bang on about the whole time here, excessive staff churn, um, depth of expertise, uh, quality of advice and judgment, confidence in giving good judgment to ministers are so, is so important. Um, so uh, I think there is uh, something incumbent on the civil service itself to prove and reprove the value of an impartial civil service. That said, I don't think it is hugely under threat. I think we're sort of past the moment of maximum danger, if you like. I think there is a fairly broad consensus that as long as the civil service is doing its job and demonstrating its, its effectiveness, an impartial civil service is the right model for the UK. I do think some of the things that Francis Maud has suggested might be in his review and has talked about in the past. My personal view is we're about right in terms of ministerial involvement uh, in civil service appointments. I think a minister who understands how the system works, and they you know, need to be told how the system works, but can actually shape uh, a huge amount about the nature of the role that um, very senior civil servants are being recruited for, uh, the job description, the process, uh, and then uh, have an influence over uh, uh, the sort of candidates that are coming through. I think we've got it about right. I certainly wouldn't extend it further. Um, uh, but I, uh, I, I wonder if with this government and a potential future government, we're, um, we're moving into the zone where we're talking more about civil service effectiveness mm. than we are about impartiality or um, hard rain or anything else. Um, on the, uh, what's the other question about? Uh, Private office, um, should it be more valued? Should be more valued, yes. Well, both. So I think it absolutely should be more valued as, you know, as a skill in itself. I don't think you should set up a huge bureaucracy around it, as you know, the civil service might be tempted to do if you go too far down that line. But, um, but it, is a, it is a set of uh, distinct skills. And it is a, um, uh, 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 I think sometimes you throw people, it might even be their first job in government mm -hmm. or their first job overall into a private secretary job. And I don't think they're then set up to do it because they don't know the department, they don't have the kind of skills and judgment they've accumulated over a few years in, in government. So I think, it, I think we need to recognise, uh, and our colleagues you know, under your leadership, Kath, have done lots of work on this, about how you best kind of grow the skills that are needed for a private secretary. But it is also a phenomenally good way of understanding how government works, mm. what makes a good senior civil servant, what makes a bad one, how ministers tick. And so I think... Uh, I don't think it should be a, a requirement for people to get to the senior civil service or, um, or higher up the tree, but I think it is a really, really useful set of experiences that you can gather on your way to being the most senior civil servant. Yep, there is an excellent report by our colleague uh, Maddie Bishop and former colleague Beatrice Barr on private office, and it also talks about the churn uh, and then uh, you know, the sort of turnover of staff, and so you're, you're lacking there. Una, can I come to you on... Uh, day one briefings, what goes into, um, obviously, if you want to touch on any of the other questions as well, do. Yeah. What goes yeah. into a day one briefing? Yeah. Um, well, maybe um, thinking about the future, um, I'll talk about what might go into a briefing for an incoming Secretary of State after a general election, because that's the high point of day one briefings. Um, that uh, would be, uh, first of all, if you can imagine, um, a new Secretary of State coming into the department, maybe a returning government or um, a newly elected government. Uh, the person comes in, the permanent secretary meets them at the door, they go upstairs or wherever, they meet the private office, and within five minutes into the Secretary of State's office and there is a red ring binder. Um, either digitally or in paper sitting there. So open this binder and what will be in it. Uh, conventionally, in my time, which is not that long ago, um, the first thing that new Secretary of State would see is a two to three page note from the permanent secretary, which is probably, certainly the ones I've written, the most difficult thing I've ever had to write because you have to, in... A, very, very short amount of space, just tell it how it is. Mm. This is the situation that you're coming into. Mm. 
this is what you're finding. Um, this is what we're here and ready to do. We've got four questions that we need immediate answers to. And, um, and by the way, you know, your flight is booked to Washington for tomorrow morning or something <laughs> yeah. like that. Now, in the case of an incoming government, um, there will, I mean, maybe we'll have this process, certainly we do need this process next year, be access talks mm. with the, um, the non-government parties. I don't know how many parties will be included. So if you're in a position, as I was involved in a position in, in 2009-2010, mm. we had, in that case, 15 months of access talks, which I do think was too long. Yeah. <laughs> we knew almost too much um, to prepare. So that ring binder, if you like, would be built out of those access talks. The ring binder for the incoming, as it turned out, conservative and, um, at the, the Conservatives was based on conversations that had had in a much shorter period of time. Um, sorry, with the Labour, I mean, um, that was in 2010, I'm confusing my years, 2010 and 2015. But there would so have been discussion of yeah. returned Labour government. Exactly. Shorter, yeah. There was a conversation with the existing Secretary of State, who I think yeah. is Andy Burnham. And then, of course, nobody was expecting a coalition. So um, there was didn't have a, a yellow binder. No, there was a lot of racing around trying to put things together in that in that strange liminal fortnight that people can remember. So that's the sort of thing. And then it would include really straightforward things like the organisation of the department, key people, things you've said you want to do. Here are our initial plans and um, a suggested programme of visits and people to meet in the first three months. And that would sort of be it. That's fascinating. Chloe, what's it like to get the binder? <laughs> um, well, good is, as, as Una says, she, that, that's absolutely correct. Um, I've had experience of you know, if you like, short ones and, and long ones, yeah. and sort of fast ones and, 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 and slower ones. Um, so, I mean, I've, 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 you know, I've served in six different departments and, and entered into them in different, in different ways. On at least two occasions, uh, I was shuffled the night before the oral questions came up the next Ooh. morning. So, with, and, and it's quite unusual, it's statistically odd to yeah. have had that happen twice, actually, I think. <laughs> um, I must have a, an unlucky star above me. But what that actually means is that, in fact, a quality filter you can apply on the day one folder is that it also has to withstand mm. oral questions and any question that Parliament mm. wishes it's to ask you point. within yeah. six hours. Yeah. You know, and, and, and it should be up to that, that standard, actually. Mm. It, it, there will be occasions where it has to be. On other occasions, you have much more time to plan. And in yeah. fact, to the point about the two-page letter at, at the front, I think that's, that, that's right, um, Una. There's also a, a sort of an, a, 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 an inverse to that relationship, which is that if you have time to uh, contemplate before being appointed, which in my case I've had happen twice, um, the most recent case where on a planned interim where I was yeah. covering Michelle Donald on maternity leave and there was time to plan and to think, um, actually, in my opinion, a good minister can come in with their own two-pager and say, right, here's what I'd like to achieve. In, mm. in this mm. department, and then it's a, you know, then it's basically a grown-up conversation about, you know, great, what's the prioritise, how priorities, how we're yeah. going to do it, but you know, but a minister shouldn't only be on on take and receive mode. Mm. Clearly, mm. a minister has to be able to, to, uh, uh, you know, appropriately, appropriately occupy their their space and their, mm. their position there. So, so in you know, it, w with that said, you know, what what do you want to? to find in that folder, you absolutely need to get wrap your head quickly around the organisational stuff, around the finances, the financial aspect of how much does it cost to run this public service in, in this envelope and, and, and so on and so on. You want to get quickly to a sense of what the tensions are within that. Mm. And, and if you don't get there on day one, you'll probably get there on day two and, and rapidly into it. You need to, to the point again about special advisors, you need to, I think, in that folder, have a sensation of how politics is going to work with the uh, official side. These shouldn't, I think, be two separate things. Mm. The process sometimes separates them very heavily, right. and mm. it would be mm. uh, most useful to have them in a kind of amalgamated form, uh, really. And that's down to your spads and your, your helpers to, to help you know, bring, bring that about. Um, you are going to... I mean, if you, if you do have time and, and ability to read the whole darn folder, you know, you, you then benefit from comprehensiveness. I've always thought that is a very have you, important Have you read thing. the whole thing? I have. I'm oh. afraid to say I'm that kind of nerd who does. You yeah. know, I'm just SWAT who basically does read that folder. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I, I just take the view that you, 
you know, you, it, once you know the breadth and depth of a thing, you can then start to, to decide how you're going to, yeah. how you're going to work. Um, but the other point I just want to throw in here is, is that of institutional memory. Mm. And this is something really significant mm. in, for the civil service, of course. You know, that's what it's there to do. That was the whole point, you know, back to the Trevelyan Northcott report, if I, if I um, name it correctly. You know, the idea is that there's going to be knowledge that can be passed on. That's, that's really important. Um, you can have short-serving ministers and you can have long-serving ministers. Mm -hmm. I happen to have been in a position, in fact, in the Cabinet Office position where Alex and I worked together, where actually, sort of 10 years later, I, I turned out to be the longest-serving person in the room and had started to supersede some of the civil servants. So, so that's unusual. But basically, what you need your civil servants to still be able to do is to remind you of the kind of length of this debate, the yeah. length of a particular issue, what used to happen, what had happened, what's the context of what we're dealing with now, yeah. because what is it that changed five years ago or two years ago or last week? You know, and only with that can you, can you start to uh, make good sense. And my plea, as well as that, to departments often is to not just think historically, but also to think laterally. Mm. What is it that you see others doing that we could learn from and, and should look across at? Yeah. On, on induction, Kathy, there's 30 seconds. I'd be interested in Chloe's views on the difference between being inducted as a Secretary of State and being inducted as a junior minister, because I always felt a bit sorry for junior ministers, because everything in a department is geared mm. towards the Secretary of State. So that mm. two-page two note that Una mm. was talking about, that's a note to the Secretary of State. That is it's correct. It's not a note to a junior minister. It's not minister. shared. So the junior minister mm. is a mm. bit sort of at sea, I think, mm. so I don't know if it felt different. You can do, but I mean, to your earlier points on this, actually, all of this, of course, then comes down to uh, how the Secretary of State, you know, chooses to be, frankly, generous and, and, in my opinion, just sensible with their time in forming a good team around them and beneath them. You know, it's, it's not in their interests, actually, to have an, an ill-functioning team uh, of, of ministers. Thoroughly agree. Uh, another round of questions in the room. Have we got? Yes. Uh, gentlemen, the... Yep, here and then at the back. And sorry, I was going to say, anyone else in the next room, please do pop your head round the door. We have somebody who's done so, and I will come to you next. Uh, Ian Andrews, Vice Chair of the National Preparedness Commission, but sometimes second perm sec of MOD. Uh, one particular issue that no one's mentioned, perhaps slightly surprisingly, is the personal accountability of the permanent secretary as accounting officer for the department yep. to parliament for the propriety, regularity, value for money, and feasibility of expenditure. And you know, that hasn't, hasn't come up. And I just wonder what the perspective of, of you, Chloe, and, and Una are on, on the tensions that can come out of that when, when trying to deliver a ministerial agenda. And just an observation, I mean, I, when I recall the Institute for Government being formed, it was quite rightly to ensure that future ministers were better prepared to be better, better ministers. And I would suggest that induction is too late to do that. Mm. And maybe that should feature in the access conversations that take place over mm. the next year or so. Mm. Very good questions. And yes, Susanna, do you want to nip back around? Oh, there you are. Um, yeah, this was sort of relating to Alex's point. Can you point. tell everyone else who you Sorry, are? Sorry, yeah, I'm Susanna Brecknell from Civil Service World. Um, and it's relating to Alex's point around ministers being managed. Um, one concern that I picked up, particularly in a recent Minister's Reflect, was around Ministers feeling they were not being allowed to speak to the actual experts in a department because mm. they were too junior. Mm. So that there was a nice... Um, I can't remember which minister who said, I wanted to speak to the expert on widgets, even if they were a HEO, and it didn't need for the HEO to have to write a script which the, grade, which the D DG signed off to come and brief me or brief the DG to brief me or whatever. So I wonder your reflections on how significant is that problem? Is that something that is um, widespread? And what would be the role of the minister and perhaps the perm sec in trying to address that problem? Okay, and then awkwardly, Maddie, at the back in the corner, <laughs> Sorry, I will, and apologies, we're slightly over time, but these okay. are such good questions. Um, my name is Josh, I'm a parliamentary assistant, um, and I'm a recent graduate, and I, used, I studied uh, the civil service quite extensively, and one of the things I kept running into is the, um, the, the, how unfixed and how unpredictable relationships can be in government. And so from, uh, from an academic perspective, is it possible to have a fixed understanding of the relationship between ministers and civil servants when so much of mm. success depends on personal and human factors? That is a very good question. Mm. Might throw that one also to our mm. next panel where the academics will be answering <laughs> that. Yeah. That's a relief. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, we are over time, so I'm going to ask for shorter ones. Who wants to take either accountability of perm sex or ministers feeling like they can speak to the actual experts and not have that filter of, mm. of whoever? I better. After you, well, Alex, you go first, no, and then Una, and then I'll finish on Chloe. Well, I was, I was going to say, Chloe seemed best, best place to do it, but um, well, okay, really quickly, personal accountability of permanent sexuals and AOs, really important. I think Una and Chloe are better place to to answer that. I think it is a you know a good clarifying thing. I think um, both sides should be more confident in uh, using a um, friendly ministerial direction at times um, where there are mm. um, uh, uh, conflicts. I don't think that should always be seen as a sign of failure. That it is sometimes seen in the in, in the system. Uh, induction too late to make more effective? Absolutely, yes. I think that's a really good good, good point. Not going to say any more than that. Minister speaking to experts. I think normally a minister can get hold of the expert, but the expert is then quite, can be quite tightly managed by the layers of seniority, and that comes from a nervousness, uh, I think. And sometimes that nervousness is well-founded. You know, you don't want to overexpose someone who might, um, you know, uh, uh, not be confident in that situation. You know, so sometimes it comes from a pastoral sense. Sometimes it comes from a, an anxious sense about, um, gosh, they might say the wrong thing or they might not, might not manage the minister in the, in the right way. And so I think it's of a piece with that, as you suggested, um, Susanna. And then, yeah, really interesting question. I think it, it, it is a relationship that is highly dependent uh, on the personality of the minister and the permanent secretary. One of the things that we're trying to kind of uh, shape in that in that area is to have a clearer view um, linking to the accounting officer point of the sphere of responsibility for a permanent secretary and for a minister I think we have this this conception of ministerial accountability <coughs> that ministers are accountable to Parliament for everything mm. and I think that sometimes allows uh, allows ministers to sort of slide their accountability off the hook and sometimes allows civil servants to slide their accountability um, uh, off, uh, to get off the hook in, in terms of sliding the accountability away. Mm -hmm. um, and I think if you were crisper on saying this really is, th this is on the permanent secretary, that might lead to more consistency of relationships and, and um, uh, a, a, is a good professional basis for, for building those relationships. Mm -hmm. But it will always come down to the personalities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I'm on that. I've slightly elided the two questions together. I mean, it's, we all often in this country talk about there being a bit of a grey area between the sort of accountability roles of the perm sec and the minister. Do you feel, as a former accounting officer, that it was clear in your mind, or is there a certain flexibility to how the UK does it? Uh, both. Okay. <laughs> okay. It's a wave and a particle um, at the same time. Uh, I was. Um, I have. It's not something I'm necessarily proud of, but it did happen. I held the record for the 2010 to 2015 Parliament of appearances before the Public Accounts Committee. Gosh. 28 occasions I went before that committee, and um, it, was a, it was a very sharp environment, I have to say, one which I deeply resented to begin with, but by the time I got two-thirds of the way into my tenure, I actually found it extremely valuable because it enabled me to have a deeper um, and, more, and sharper understanding of these often system issues that I was being asked to explain because they were to do with the money. I'm very clear, and I was always very clear, that the role of the Secretary of State is to make decisions and to account for those decisions. The role of the department is to provide the best possible evidence, advice and insight and access to a range of views to enable ministers to reach a good decision. Mm. So that much is clear, but obviously in the flotsam and jetsam of everyday life, those boundaries do, do get a bit blurred. Um, one thing that I would definitely say, think that would enhance accountability all round, and I speak now as a citizen on the outside of uh, government, is I do think we need much greater transparency on the rationale behind decisions. Mm. The um, cost-benefit analyses and the risk of the assessments that go with legislation are not um, really given sufficient attention. We need much greater openness on what's behind the decisions, and I think that that will really support a higher, higher accountability. Um, so, yeah, I think... 
the accountability has to run through the department as well. It's not just the permanent secretary personally. It's distributed amongst the senior civil service. And in, you know, in my ideal future, I would like to see a lot more than just the permanent secretary call before the PAC. I think it should be shared more widely. <laughs> Broader accountability for our role. Brilliant. And um, Chloe, final words to you, but bear in mind that you'll be preventing people from going to lunch. So. <laughs> I'll keep it very brief. Um, okay, so I've, I have nothing more that needs to be added, I think, on, on terms of accounting officer. That's a very good, good, good subject that's been covered. On the terms of junior officials, if I may actually just turn it round very slightly, there is also the scenario where junior ministers are sometimes not given enough time from the senior officials. Mm. It happens the other way mm. as well. Um, in my experience, uh, very strong working relationships get formed actually between junior official, uh, sorry, junior ministers and the deputy director level in the department. And in fact, I think this was us, was, wasn't it, Alex? Was I, I think. Um, uh, and, and that really is, is a, where a lot of the kind of workhorse stuff actually takes place. And I think that's important. Um, that then flexes basically up and down as you, uh, as, you as, as, as things move on. Um, the final question I just wanted to deal with, deal with was the one from the, the uh, man at the back, yeah. Josh, around personal and human factors. And you, you make a really great point, which kind of helps us to tie some threads together here, doesn't it? I mean, the first point there is that this is, this is the constitution that we live and breathe and make work in this country. You know, it does rest, in the end, on individual people. It does. That's what it's about. Mm. Parliamentary sovereignty, sovereignty, you know, kind of is a funnel of numbers and of a majority and of who has the right to do it. But in the end, then, it's a person making a decision and a team, a very small number of people in a team making a, a set of decisions. So, you know, I, I have huge respect for all of that, but indeed it does come down to human factors, therefore. Um, you can sometimes get the laugh, the laugh end of this, actually, uh, as a minister, um, because you are still a person being put through a bit of a machine, as has also been mentioned this morning. Uh, and to, to pick up the point about a constituency office and sometimes mm. the lens that they can bring to this, my uh, wonderful constituency office team has often had a, a giggle at some of the communication that comes from the private office team who um, use the title in a very sort of ceremonial way. And it's, it's very, um, uh, uh, you know, you have to be humbled by all of this, but basically you kind of get a series of acronyms then become your name. So you stop being Chloe and mm. you become, I mean, I just wrote a few of them down, uh, EST, MCD, MFPCR, and then eventually at the, kind of the top of the tree is the inimitable SOS. Yeah. Um, and that last one is lovely, of course, but the, the Norwich team would basically say, right, who, who is this EST? Who is this MFPCR? It's Chloe, isn't it? You know, yeah. we've got to decide where Chloe needs to be at 10 o'clock in the morning. You know, so, so yes, the personal uh, in the end, you know, I mean, it, it, that's all very amusing, but in the end, yes, it's a person doing a job supported by other good people and you know you need to forge the relationships that will allow that to happen alongside the systems that support it that is a brilliant moment to bring this to a close um, thank you to our panel thank you all for watching and for some excellent questions here and online we're going to take a break we'll be back at uh, around one a bit after one probably at this rate for our next panel looking at how academics are or could be using ministers reflect for their research see you then